Welcome to episode two of How Did I Get Here? The podcast that talks to people about the things that they've done and the lives that they've lived. Today's guest is poet Jacob Stroutman, whose debut collection of poetry is out this spring from Four Way Books. It's called The Land of the Dead is Open for Business, a group of poems that explore the emotional and literal topography of Stroutman's home state of West Virginia. In these poems, Stroutman digs underneath the stereotype of the hillbilly from Appalachia to etch out the terrain of lives filled with grief and loss, but also with hope and great beauty. Jacob, welcome to the show. I'm still going to work to my day job, but I know that you are working from home. Is that right? Yeah. I've, I've traded all that over for actually starting work earlier in the same chair that I just had my coffee in when I woke up. Right. And, uh, and it's the same chair I'm going to eat my lunch in and my dinner in. One of the really wonderful aspects of, of being home at my lunch break is that I'm able to go outside. And, and while I'm not a sporty person by any means, I'm able to throw a football with my son for 15 minutes every every day it's not raining and that, I think that's helped both of us uh, he's also my, my daughter and my my son are both on for many hours a day with their teachers you know basically still attending class but in within their bedrooms so a lot of adjustments are are happening right now in in our home well I wanted to um, start by talking about the book of course because that's kind of just come out and I'm literally sitting here and looking at it in the cover it's a sort of black and white photograph of what looks like a probably a smaller town and in some point in the in the past and half of it is flooded and you see a bridge that looks like it's going right into a flood and i think that's interesting both in the idea of topography but i'm also wondering if that is that photograph on the front of your book is depicting an actual event of a of a dam burst or something that you might actually touch upon in one of your poems let me first start by saying the cover is the first known photograph, uh, official photograph, I guess, of Wheeling at the time, Virginia, Wheeling, West Virginia now. And um, you're seeing that uh, Wheeling suspension bridge heading over to Wheeling Island, which in the, uh, in, the, in the image is almost completely underwater with a few trees, some houses uh, sticking out of the water. Yep. And then in the background, you see the, the rolling hills of Ohio. So, uh, so this is from, uh, as far as I understand it, this is from 1842. The idea of the Ohio flooding and the, the power of of nature, I think, was at the forefront of what I was, I was trying to get at, which was, it's a feeling, I, I think, uh, a lot of people who grow up in very rural areas of feeling quite small when, when there are forces around you that uh, you really just can't control. And, and certainly in the Ohio Valley, there have been a number of fatal floods, um, uh, some of them caused by over, overuse of the land, mining, logging and lately the fracking boom you know really uprooted a lot of the uh, protections that nature has put in you know in terms of erosion and to to create these dangerous uh, situations there is a poem in the book about when i was trying to engage with the 1936 flood of the ohio there's some amazing photographs from that time I went to undergrad at Wheeling Jesuit University. It's a university that doesn't exist in its uh, Jesuitness anymore. They they cut all the all the liberal arts programming and the uh, theology and the priests are gone, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, they did an interesting program where you know there was like a, a go out and help people day, the volunteer day, and uh, ours happened to fall directly after a flood that had just happened. I think this was in on the island again, Wheeling Island. In 1996, so I was, you know, helping to move canned food or clean up some of the debris from that flood, and, and got to see it more up close. And so that's where this poem really kind of got its its starting point. And so the poem that came out of it is called "Wheeling Baptism," and I don't know if you want me to read that. Sure, absolutely. Wheeling Baptism. Down on an island, tear-shaped as Christ's sandal, fording the river, the flood stage crests, would wash the sinners under were it not for the buckle of I-70 clasping Bridgeport. Front streets, empty storefronts, white, shin-deep 
in the cataclysm of their place, sway to furtive preachers, lurch at whatever wisps below, tins of negatives, paddlefish ribs, the long dark train maneuvering spring thaw through cores of cinder blocks, squares of light clogged with sediment, they rolled away in mourning like a sun. Uh, and of course, uh, morning there is spelled as in the daytime uh, morning, but uh, <laughs> it has an echo. There, there are echoes there, yeah. Um, and and so that mix of uh, I don't know Christian uh, reflection with uh, something that's a little bit more native to the land um, yeah. seemed to be a, a a good starting point for the for the whole book, the topography, as you put it. Right. I mean, it does seem like a cataclysm of place is often what we are talking about today when we talk about Appalachia because of the poverty, because of the opioids, because of the way the land has been misused. You know, the idea that flooding today involves not just a natural process of a river spilling over its banks, but the flooding of various, you know, industrial waste from mining operations flooding into groundwater and flooding into fields and and so forth that that is now a part of there's a a part of the picture it seems like there is a cataclysm in place when we think of Appalachia do you think that's fair is that right is that how you see it as somebody who's from there well I have to uh, I have to preface any kind of um, complicated view of where I'm from with the fact that uh, I I dearly love the place and I hope that also comes forward as frankly as dark as the book is um, I, I do spend a good amount of time in it I think trying to capture details that I hope well that I hope don't disappear from the face of the earth but I'm afraid are disappearing I, I feel like my my relationship with I, I can say West Virginia more than Appalachia but um, but certainly West Virginia is uh, is completely Appalachia that uh, that growing up, I, I I didn't feel like I particularly fit in. At least my nuclear family did not hunt. You know, we did live on a hill on five acres above my aunts. Uh, and, you know, I heard the uh, three wheelers at the time and then later four wheelers going up and down the, um, you know, the ATVs he heading down to go mudding or, or whatever at the river, but I, I, or at the creek, but I certainly didn't take part. Um, that wasn't, really my scene. And so I always felt a little bit outside of a lot of the, a lot of the items of cultural interest, a lot of the, um, you know, what do you do for fun on the weekend? Well, I, I love to work on, I love to, to computer program and watch Star Trek. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, so I was outside of, I mean, I, you know, a lot of people do that everywhere, but I was very allergic to everything outside. I grew up with pretty bad asthma. So running or getting too physical wasn't really on the agenda. And then there was a period of time, my parents are going to love that I mentioned this, um, between ages uh, three, four, five, when uh, you know, the neighbors would would shoot the groundhogs around from their fields or whatever. And then our dogs would go get the bodies of the groundhog, rip them up in our mm. front yard so that, you know, the guts were everywhere and eyeballs <laughs> everywhere. And um, so I actually stayed indoors for three years, uh, probably just because I was terrified. And my, my mother will immediately say it wasn't three years, Jake. It was like one summer. I I feel pretty fine exaggerating that because I'm still frankly really disgusted by the whole um, the whole idea of, of rotting flesh on your front lawn. Yeah I think it does leave something to be desired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's not it's not surprising that somebody who grows up to be an artist of any stripe feels like a little bit of an outsider as, as a young adult or as a, a young person. I wanted to to turn to a poem in your book that is maybe more personal, I read it as more personal, but contains such very beautiful details of kind of life, everyday life. Uh, and it's a poem called Mother's Day. And I wondered if you could read that before we talk much about it. Oh, sure. Mother's Day. Dig for potatoes, brush the earth from their faces. Under the tap, scrub them with wool, like smoke, as the television scrolls with names, white letters, 
on a blue background. Start the water to boil because you forgot to start it before. The dull propane hisses. The peeler chases your thumb around each one over the sink, mornings one dish. A hand with a knife works them into halves, then quarters of themselves, then nothing. When you push them from the cutting board, scald your arm, wince, and sweep the rest with the knife's edge. This is necessary. It isn't the only thing left with which to fill your day, but nearly, it's nearly the only thing. Thanks. I, I think that's such a great poem, the way it really starts out almost like a recipe, like step one, dig for potatoes. And then it just slowly, you're kind of pulled into more of an internal world of what this means and the fact that it's called Mother's Day. The the poem, <laughs> I, um, I just recorded this poem and it was just released uh, for um, the West Virginia Humanities Council's uh, segment called uh, Poets, I think, in a time of crisis, poets in a time of crisis. And, um, you know, that uh, I got, a, I got a, a wonderful uh, comments on it, but one of my favorite was from my mother who said, uh, that doesn't seem like me. Um, <laughs> and, and it was very astute reading of her because um, this, this may be one of the least autobiographical uh, poems in the piece, although I feel like I made a lucky break uh, or had a lucky break on two, two or lucky accident, let's say, um, on, on two aspects of this. And the first one is, you know, I wanted to honor um, the kind of loneliness that that might sneak into uh, mothers in particular. Um, the other lucky break is that, or lucky accident is that the, I was looking, they, they were looking for a poem uh, for this Poets in a Time of Crisis that had some sort of element of resilience in it, um, you know, uh, and, and so I started reading through my poems trying to think of what was resilient that I could share, and, um, and this one, because I don't specifically talk about the reason for the isolation um, uh, of the mother, um, it become, it, it, it it was able to speak a little bit more to what we're all facing uh, right now, um, or at least I hope I hope it does. But in fact, uh, the poem is a late revision of uh, a fully different poem. And when I say it's a revision, and it not a single line in it is the same as the uh, the version of it that came before, um, I think I can I think I can stand on that ground. Um, but uh, the original poem was about the Sago mine disaster um, that happened in January 6th, 2nd, 2006, the Sago mine, and that's in Sago, West Virginia. It trapped 13 uh, miners and only one survived. Yeah. Um, and so I think in, in our, you know, kind of rear view of history, the uh, deaths of 29 miners at Upper Big Branch uh, tends to um, eclipse this other um, very large tragedy um, or accident or, um, you know, a, a, at least in Upper Big Branch, there was, they were able to tie it to some negligence of the, of the company. But in, in this case, it, the grief was even bigger in some ways. Um, I don't know how more, how much bigger grief can be to losing family members uh, when they go off to do their job. But in this case, uh, there was an all, you know, round the clock rescue uh, attempt to get the miners out. And um, at one point, uh, somebody radioed to somebody else that they'd found them. Mm. And that person assumed they meant found them alive. Right. And so it got as far as the governor of West Virginia, uh, Joe Manchin at the time, announcing that uh, they'd all been found safe and oh. sound. And so the families were gathered at a church to hopefully meet them. Uh, and that's when uh, the, uh, I don't know if it was the CEO, but somebody associated with the company came in uh, with an armed escort and told them that, uh, in fact, only one had made it and the oh. rest were gone. Wow. So that newspapers, you know, had to change headlines uh, in the middle of the night. And yeah. um, 
Yeah. Uh, and so yep. the original poem was trying to figure out how to deal with that kind of like double, yeah. double betrayal. Uh, it had gone through many iterations that it just wasn't clicking. I was I was playing with the um, the Easter story of people who are dead and not dead um, right. behind a tomb uh, or behind a rock. So uh, so I had I had played with that theme and maybe I'll I'll pick it up again at some point. But I just couldn't find a way of talking about that grief and be. And this is the problem with any sort of writing, right? You don't want to be clever. Right. Um, and while you're trying to honor something that is um, deeply um, affecting of people who are still, uh, certainly people are still uh, dealing with the consequences of it. Right. It's like the double-edged sword of writing is that you need to be intellectually engaged to a certain extent, but if it's just an intellectual exercise, then you're probably not going to reach the, the, the heart of the matter um, in a sense and, and honor what you're doing. Right, right. And I had this lucky, uh, I was I was working through the different poems in the book with a, a former student who had um, a, a really uh, uh, Louise Akers, who's uh, writing poems now out in the world. Um, and she was reading them and, and she kind of kept getting tripped up on this poem, no matter how I'd written it. And she said, you know, uh, just tell me what it, what's going on here. And I told her the story I just told you. And she said, yeah. well, you know, you're talking about grief, but there's no grief in this other poem. Why don't you write a poem about grief? Uh, and so I was like, damn it. <laughs> Let me sit down and see if I can, you know, you know, what one thing that I was thinking of is, you know, oftentimes when there's a, uh, uh, a deaths in multiple deaths in a mine, um, it often, you'll find out that somebody lost a husband and a father or somebody lost a father and a son um, right. often because uh, families follow each other in and, uh, or at least used to. Um, certainly the number of people in mines employed in West Virginia today are much, much uh, lower than ever in history. But yeah, I, um, I was thinking about somebody who, um, you know, those white uh, names on a, a blue background. Yes. You know, that, that idea that those, uh, those deaths are ever present in some way. Right. Um, right. And I didn't quite pick up on exactly what that meant, but the definitely the elegiac tone of the poem definitely comes through. And the fact that this is a mother, but we don't see any children. We don't see any, you know, she's not opening cards or whatever, like, you know, on mother's day. So we do see this as a, a moment of isolation where which is i think where the grief part comes from even if you don't understand as i didn't understand uh what those names on the the screen actually represented yeah yeah well thank thank you for for seeing that i you know i have not read this one out in public very often because unless i tell you that full story <laughs> it's um it, it's kind of one of the ones that doesn't immediately bring up a, a story uh, that's right. easy to tell. Uh, that right. one's harder to tell. Well, and the interesting thing about the poems, reading them all, and my, my typical approach to poetry is to read some poems and then let that sink in, read a few more, sometimes with a time interval of a few days between. But I really sat down and read this book, uh, you know, more or less cover to cover in preparation for this interview. Um, and it really does take you to a different place and a different, uh, it's very almost in, incantatory in a, in a, in a, a way of, of, of making you feel like you're both in a different place physically to some degree, because, you know, like, like a lot of people, I'm sure who are listening to this podcast, I'm sitting in the middle, essentially in the middle of a city or in the middle of a fairly large community. Uh, but also emotionally, where that's this, some of these emotions become uh, more readily available. Um, and one of the things that strikes me that's interesting, you know, obviously in this time, particularly with what we're going through with the coronavirus, but in general in America is how isolated the men are from one another, generally in your poems in this book. Um, and I think that's just a fact of American life, it seems to me, whether it's West Virginia or California or Wisconsin or wherever it is that, that people live. American men particularly seem to self-isolate one from another. And there's a, a beautiful poem called uh, Goshorn Ridge Proposals. It's a short poem, uh, and I think it, 
you know, speaks to it pretty, pretty succinctly. Uh, and I wondered if you could read that. Sure. It's um, Goshorn Ridge Proposals. Let me say it again. Goshorn Ridge Proposals. A flick of her tongue was wind crossing fence and swishing mares. On contour maps of Cameron District, Marshall County, West Virginia, men ripple in isolation. What's unlikely to be written well? Their muscular turning away is sentiment caricatured. Dry leaves drilled by rain until they break. Feels like in a very few lines, there's a lot happening in this poem. You know, just the fact that you kind of have a man and a woman in this poem, or men and women, who aren't quite connecting. And the men are in isolation, and you know, that's not even, you know, the, the, the idea of communicating to another person, even through writing, has kind of been taken away. You know, it's a muscular turning away. Is that something that you have felt in your own life? Was that, did, did that echo into your upbringing at all? I know you. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a period in, uh, you know, kindergarten and first grade. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into therapy here, but. Sure. It's all therapy right now for everyone. I think we're all uh, doing our own therapy. When in, in kindergarten and first grade, I think there was a point where I realized that I was um, connecting or being lauded or, or whatever it was for, for being good at school or, uh, or whatever it was, more from the women in, in the world than the men. And um, when I did find the men, they were often engaged in something that I didn't connect with. So, you know, my grandfather uh, would have his head in his Cadillac trying to, you know, work out um, what the problem is. And I had no, like from a very young age, I had no interest in being um, mechanical. Right. Um, although, although my father likes to remind me that uh, when I was quite young, I was able to put a nut and bolt together much younger than he thought I should have been able to. And, and so uh, the hope was there, but it didn't pay out. Um, <laughs> so, um, so the, as I got older, then the, I think partially, un, uh, cer certainly unfairly, I began to think of men around me uh, as being you know, kind of quiet and removed and Un, not not unresponsive, but just not present. You know, um, you know they were the ones out in the tree stands waiting for deer. Um, they were in their garages stoking a fire. Um, they were in the backhoe. Um, you know what I mean by themselves. Right. So I, I none of those. None of those things appealed to me. Um, although, gosh, what I wouldn't give for have a, a fireplace in a garage right now. Amen. But <laughs> you said, uh, you know, you felt like that was somewhat unfair to them in retrospect. Yeah. Do you think that there was just more there that you just didn't, you just didn't have access to? Or do you think that they were unable to access that side of themselves themselves? In other words, that they could not always conjure up the emotional response to something or that it was shuttled into something else that was more acceptably Accepted, acceptably masculine. Um, mm. Well, I mean, I want to say that there was something um, you know, culturally. It was it was tough to find examples of men who had gone through uh, or really honored the idea of of higher level education uh, of reading. Um, I did certainly have male teachers through elementary and, and high school, but on a daily basis with my family, the men certainly knew how to talk and laugh and twist words and joke, but um, I was never quite sure if I was getting the whole story from them, um, in part because I couldn't take part in the rest of the world uh, that they might have. Uh, you know, I, I knew early on I was never going to be a, a war veteran. I knew early on I wasn't going to ever be excited about Chrome. Um, and so, um, Say no more. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, um, but I, I, I want to I 
clarify that I think I made up my mind very early. But I had, uh, I think, blanket uh, determined that everybody was a kind of a just waiting for hunting season to come around. You know, it was great when hunting season did come around in West Virginia because I was the, you know, one of like two two guys in the in in the entire high school. Being one of two guys in the entire school for a couple days was pretty uh, pretty amazing, actually. Oh, I'm I'm sure it's it's kind of like every every young man's dream to be the only only fish in the pond. So. <laughs> Did you did did boys your age or older boys or men ever try to take you out and toughen you up a little bit or you know do any of that kind of thing? I, I seem to remember some of that in my own case that there was this sort of you know get that book out of your hands and get out here and I don't know do something very masculine. Right, right. Um, you know, I um, there was this uh, moment in second grade um, continuing our therapy session. Um, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> There was this moment in second grade where uh, they, these men came into our classroom and said, all the boys need to come to the gym now. Oh boy. And uh, I know this is very ominous. I, well, and I was so, terrified at that point because it probably would have involved something I couldn't do, like a push-up or, <laughs> or a pull-up. Um, yeah, my, my, uh, my big claim to fame in, in gym, actually up until about sixth grade, my flexibility, I could pass that test. Um, wow. Uh, better than better than most. I think there was one guy who could beat me and it drove me nuts every year. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. For flexibility. Yeah. yeah. But um, they lined us up in the gym and they they said, okay, so Cameron is a wrestling town and you're all going to be our future wrestlers. Although of course they said wrestlers. <laughs> um, so we were we were being primed to be wrestlers and to join the peewee league, I think is what they called it. Um, and so, you know, they were essentially handing us out things to get our singlets and to join the practices and stuff and you know stuff like that to to let us know. And of course, in the middle of them talking to us about that, uh, the guy next to me picks up the guy next to him and does a helicopter slam down onto the hard gym floor and their tears and, oh, and you know half the people cheer and half of us are you know cowering and uh, said no 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 not that kind of wrestling. So, um, so yeah, so, so that was, um, I guess, you know, I, I, I was kind of shepherded into that and I did wrestle for, what was it like two seasons or maybe it was just one season, but, um, I was disgusted by every element of it from, you know, close contact with other individuals to, um, the smell of the wrestling mat. And I never won anything. I, um, they kept trying to give me, you know, a, a medal for doing something. And so they kept having me, like, I remember one tournament, they kept having me, even after I'd been knocked off of the, uh, the brackets, they kept having me come back in to hopefully get me some sort of, you know, I think it was a purple, you know, participation thing or something like that. And they couldn't even get me that because I, <laughs> <laughs> that must have I was been so, so, I was so bad at it. That must have been so humiliating. I mean, I remember the good parts of those experiences always being like, okay, it's over. I've done it and it didn't go well and I don't have to do it again. So the idea of being called back <laughs> in an attempt to, to do this thing that you're not good at and you know is going to be somewhat painful, both physically and emotionally, is just sounds like a nightmare. But yeah, I mean, Cameron, Cameron uh, does uh, retain, I don't know what its status is now, but uh, all through the 80s and 90s, it was uh, quite a powerhouse of, of wrestling. I wanted to ask too about, you said uh, the Wheeling uh, College where you had gone uh, was a Jesuit school, now is not, and cut out sort of the liberal arts. And I know that's getting to be a thing in many places, but given what you've said about masculine activities and, and men not seeking more, it sounds like honoring as much the, the things that go into a classic education as much as perhaps women. And then in the face of that in Wheeling, West Virginia, having this college that sort of says, well, we're going to go to, I'm, I'm guessing, something that's more vocational. I mean, do you feel that people are robbed of an opportunity to get a liberal arts education as far as men could do that? And and there would be a place locally that had some sort of even a spiritual grounding and Jesuit right. tradition that might be interesting and available versus just giving people a vocation, vocational tools, which I, I'm guessing is what they're more going towards and something you could get a job with. And I certainly understand that for people who are not well off in this country, 
that is the number one question of how will I make a living? And I don't want to make light of that or say that that's not important because it is. I, I, uh, I had my mind made up late high school. I, I mean, well, let's, let's put it this way. So we were all required to have, um, to get our high school rings. You remember those uh, third parties that come in and force you to, you know, get your high school ring so you can give it to your sweetheart or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you could put your own design on it. And um, <laughs> I, uh, mine was, uh, was the lamp of knowledge, Nate. Oh. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it had, you know, the garnet and then over top of it over, you know, overlaid was this lamp of knowledge. And mm. um, I was so excited. I think I saw that same lamp on the, uh, uh, the town where I currently live, their their library um, has the lamp of knowledge uh, at wow. the apex of the the roof. I was it's uh, like, yeah, I knew, I knew I was coming for you. Um, but uh, no, the uh, I think I knew right away that I didn't want to go to college to get a job. Um, I, I know that 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 is the um, the language that uh, a lot of people used and and for real practical reasons use. And I was. At least in my my uh, immediate family, I was the first person to go to college yeah. for you know like a four year program. I think my dad had done some vocational uh, apprenticeship work. He was in the local number thirty three um, for the uh, sheet metal workers, and uh, my mother had done some uh, classes on uh, I think it was on bookkeeping um, as she was uh, she was a clerk in a bank. Mm. Um, both of them seemed mostly unhappy with their jobs. And so, um, you know, I just, I just, I guess I was heading in because I like to read yeah. um, and I wanted to read more. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I went into college for. And Wheeling Jesuit was close by. It was one of the better uh, colleges. Um, but, uh, but it also, you know, frustrates me to no end that, um, that the thing that is determined to be expendable uh, are the liberal arts, are the um, you know the English department, uh, philosophy, religion, what arts that they did there. It, it was never turned up to eleven at uh, Wheeling, but there was always something happening there, and therefore something always happening in Wheeling. And so I think that uh, maybe right now. Uh, the effect of it isn't quite clear, but I think over time we're going to to see uh, a real loss in the community. I can um, be really grateful for Wheeling Jesuit because that's where I found my interest in poetry. Mm. Um, but I can also thank Wheeling Jesuit for that, you know, those that BA in English and history uh, that then helped propel me to my master's in creative writing and my experience of working at Boston University for the past 20 years. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not, uh, it's, 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 it's funny because I think, um, I think it's easy to maybe think about the loss of these, uh, these, these things as a lessening um, of one's life experience, but I, I wonder if maybe that's the uh, that's the place where um, where I often get you know kind of hung up um, you know where I make a mistake because uh, lives are full regardless um, right so um, but you know certainly uh, I think you're right about the uh, the loss of uh, the loss of uh, you know the just damn it just read a book um <laughs> is kind of what i'm saying i mean right, right. because you read a book and you feel confident enough to read a book uh, i think there's that 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 lip to get over and the ability to read a book without understanding every element of it when i was a young man in my early i was probably about 20 and i read uh the autobiography of malcolm x you know sitting in my father's living room in west central illinois kind of in the middle of nowhere without a whole lot of experience. Obviously, Malcolm X and I didn't have a lot in common, but reading that book opened up a whole window on a way of thinking about my life and historically what had been people's lives and how people fit together in the world in terms of race that I 
was totally was fairly new to me and was was interesting and stuff that I've carried with me since then. Um, so that was a really meaningful experience. And that was at a time where I'd already flunked out of college. So I didn't think of myself as someone who was like, wow, I'm going to go to college and get a shiny degree and that this is going to be some part of that. It was just me as an individual trying to figure out what my life was was about. But I wanted to actually return to this, this how you became a poet. I mean, you could ask in this culture today, how does anybody become a poet? <laughs> uh, but in your own case, just being from a culture that doesn't, you know, that I don't want to say nobody honors poetry because there is a poetry in, in, in sometimes in an oral tradition, there's a poetry in how people live their lives, there's a poetry in how people look at the landscape and what they see in a landscape is often very poetic. And there's there are those sensibilities that are very alive in places that don't necessarily have a tradition of the written word. So I don't want to denigrate where you're from, but being in a place that probably doesn't as most of America probably doesn't. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you go to your high school guidance counselor today, what aptitude test you would take to, to that would come out as you should be a poet. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that you, there's no, there's no configuration of skills that could get you to poet. So, so for you, it sounds like it happened when you were at Wheeling. Was it just the writing of it? Was it the reflection on your own experience? Was it the reading of poets that kind of spoke to you or how did that transpire? Um, yeah, um, I actually was a science kid. Uh, you know, I remember picking up my first book on uh, electrons and atoms and the, you know, classical model of things. And uh, I must have been in third grade when I first read this book. And I thought that it was that somebody had an alternative spelling for Adam and Eve. And I, I seriously was so wow. confused, but I, I read it. I actually ended up getting that book out of that same library something like 14 times uh, over the course of the next three years. Um, this was like third through sixth grade or something like that. And uh, so I, I, was, I was bound and determined to be a scientist of some sort. Probably a cosmologist was, was where I, I was really interested. I was reading Stephen Hawking and pretending to read Einstein and... Uh, you know, I thought I was pretty hot stuff uh, reading Discovery magazine. So <laughs> I even, you know, in eighth eighth grade, I think it was between eighth and ninth or something like that, I went to space camp. Um, mm. And uh, I was like, yeah, this is where I want to be. And so when I went into Wheeling Jesuit, I went in as a, um, I went in as a, a technology and innovation major, which, uh, you know, in my mind, I was, uh, you know, heading off onto a Star Trek degree. And when I got there, I realized it was more about how to market, you know, Googas and um, uh, widgets and things like that. And how, you know, they had one of the first uh, uh, 3D printers in the state. And that was really exciting for up to a point, but then I didn't really understand what I was getting into. And so what I found myself drawn to were the English classes, the history classes, the, the, the classes where you had to read and talk. Um, mm -hmm. And I found myself much more comfortable in those classes than in talking about the production history of stuff. But um, I should tell you that's that's you know that's really the surface of of my my move toward Wheeling Jesuit. But uh, underneath it, I was also playing music. My dad's a musician. Um, mm. My my grandfather was a, a clown. I always say that and then pause and then you know clarify that he was a Shriner um, who did, uh, did <laughs> was in the circus um, yeah. that they put on. But, you know, I was around people who performed and I certainly saw my dad perform all the way through my life. But yeah, I, I kind of thought, oh, I'm going to be a musician. I, I think I had gone from the, I'm going to be the mad scientist to I'm going to be the, um, the rock star uh, by the time I'd left high school. Actually, the, the poetry thing kind of kicked off and in two ways. After my freshman year, I had just gone through a class in which uh, a teacher had got me excited about Keats. Yeah. And then I'd taken a creative writing class uh, with, uh, with John Whitehead, who's a, a fiction writer. And I, I started to think that, hey, this is maybe something that I really enjoy. Um, and I think like many poets, maybe I'm really overgeneralizing here, but uh, <laughs> I, I said, I'm a poet uh, before I really had many volumes of poetry on the shelf or before I'd really written anything. Um, it just felt like the right, you know, kind of word to attach to who I felt like I was. 
Did that seem like a culture shift for you just from where you've come from with how you thought about yourself or did it seem like the process of, of an evolution that was already underway that just sort of like, yep, that's the, that's, that's the sort of next step or destination or whatever? Well, here's the problem, Nate, with talking about origin stories you know, or, or kinds of origin stories is that we get to tell our our myths and then telling them kind of solidify them as, as, as truth when in fact um, there were a ton of other, you know, kind of uh, balls up in the air. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of what you do with, with life when some things work out and, you know, some, some, some balls you catch and some just drop on the floor and become nothing. Right. And it's the ones that you can catch that make sense to you. Right, right. And so my, my musical interests had, you know, been brought into a, a community of people with many broader uh, musical interests. So, uh, so I was like, I was discovering um, a, a hell of a lot. I had an opportunity or I found an opportunity to work abroad in, mm. in the summer of, gosh, was it the summer of 96? in Ireland. And mm. I had this lovely guitar uh, that uh, Gibson Hummingbird that I wanted to take with me, but I didn't trust that I could get it there and back without breaking it. Right. Um, and it's kind of a good thing that I didn't because essentially, you know, all those kind of Keats and uh, creative writing class and not being able to take your, your guitar that you write your, your bad lyrics on, um, they all kind of converged on Oh, I'm going to go and be a poet in Ireland. And so romantic too. <laughs> well, I had a ponytail and, um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so, I, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I was, uh, I was really naive and, uh, green and, you know, I just declared myself a poet and I'm going to Ireland now to, to do that. Yeah. And I got a job, uh, that summer for, uh, room and board, and I think it was two Irish pounds uh, an hour. Maybe it was less. Um, was <laughs> two... like a special American rate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sort of saw you coming. Yeah, so I was the night watchman on Inishmore. Uh, there was a hostel there on Inishmore, and so I was the night watchman, which uh, it lasted exactly uh, one week. Um, to learn how to be that person, then a week of doing it and realizing I never wanted to do it again, it and then a week of training my successor. So it sounds like the start of a pinter play or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the night watchman at Innsbruck or whatever. Right, right, yeah, no, it it oh. it had it it was a complicated thing because there I was this fresh faced, uh, ponytailed nineteen year old. And the, the majority of the people who are coming to the hostel were vacationing people from other places in Ireland who couldn't afford to go other places. Yeah. So I was then, you know, people were drinking in the kitchen and I was saying, I'm sorry, you have to, you know, head to your rooms. It's after 10. <laughs> <laughs> this is a thankless job. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm sure they all took you very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> But while I was there, I, of course, started reading Yeats. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was where things started to come together. Actually, there was somebody in that hostel, and, and this really is the, um, both an origin story and a um, and, uh, and really unadulterated truth. Um, uh, I had written my verses, um, you know, just as I had written my songs, you know, so essentially I was writing song lyrics, but on a piece of paper and calling it a poem. Yeah. And I brought it to, uh, there was a, a fellow from Canada, I don't remember his name. Um, and he was staying in, they had, they had us, the, the help, uh, staying in a shack in the back mm. uh, of the place on, on bunk beds or something like that. And, um, and he had his own special shack because he'd been there for a while. And, uh, but he was, he was uh, about to move on, but uh, one day he invited me to go for a walk across the, you know, Inishmore is just, it's a lot of rocks, right? And very little scrub brush and, you know, it's very, um, it's very desolate. And so we were going to go over to the, uh, the Atlantic side where the, the, the cliffs are just beaten by the water constantly. And so we headed over there. 
and got talking about poetry. And he said, oh yeah, I've, I've published a poem or two. And I said, oh, will you take a look at what I've, I've, I've got? And he, he looked at him and he said, you, you, um, this isn't poetry. Mm. And I, you know, this was the very first time anybody had really criticized an, an artistic endeavor of mine. Right. Um, I'm sure other ones deserved criticizing my music, for instance. But, <laughs> um, my, uh, but this was like, oh, I'm I'm doing something new, and you know, I'm expecting to be supported. And this guy was like, I don't know you. Right. <laughs> Here, here's, if you're going to be a poet, you need to study poetry, and you need to find out what uh, tradition you're taking part in, and you need to um, you need to find a book that will will show you how to practice that wow and i think i took a big breath in and uh, decided i wasn't going to be writing any more poetry anytime soon and um but i was also leaving the island fairly quickly um because the isolation actually was just a bit too much yeah and they wanted me to clean the toilets so um so i somewhere and that's that's not a summer vacation for anybody i i got the boat back to galway uh, where I then lived for two months in another hostel, now spending you know much more than two pounds an hour. I, I, uh, I went into a bookshop there and I found X. J. Kennedy's uh, Introduction to Poetry. It was it was I still have it downstairs. It's a terrific everything that you would expect from a first poetry book. Here's how you write a sonnet. Here's the different variations on that. Here are. 15 examples of sonnets and here's, you know, and also a little bit of here's my story of becoming a poet. And um, so I did every, you know, exercise I could in that book. And in the meantime, I'd picked up the Yeats when I was on the island. And so I was reading Yeats and writing poems in form. Uh, and so that was, uh, that was the big uh, kind of kick in the pants to, to do it right. Uh, in terms of coming back to places that you've been or formative places or, um, and I know, and again, I, the sense of it I've got that it's been kind of confirmed by talking with you is that you are talking about your own past to some degree and where you're from, but you're also putting on different personas. Not everything is, is something that you specifically have gone through. Right, right. I mean, I, I did, I did help to run a theater for 20 years and so right uh, the idea of of wearing masks is right. um you know kind of integrated into you know that how i might approach any sort of poem right and did you think that th was that particularly helpful in 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 writing about west virginia and writing about um not necessarily your own experience but this this formative place for you in that you weren't just locked into your own experience you could actually explore it more broadly uh, using the masks, I think, helped me to write about a, a place that I, you know, things I wasn't particularly comfortable writing about. There's a there's a poem in here about um, helping my dad on a car, yeah. um, the blue Cadillac that was uh, inherited from my 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 grandfather. And sure, I think I probably did something like that at one point. But in the poem, you know. Uh, there's a sense of uh, the community gathering around to see how it's done. And that is certainly not my experience. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, so th there are, there are uh, ways in which I was able to write or things I was able to write about that uh, I think I would have run far away from if I had to say it as Jake saying it. You do have a great line in that poem. Uh, we stand in a circle, uh, we stand a circle of acetylene silence which I thought was great, kind of suggesting that people who are watching this activity of fixing the car uh, and the settling, of course, being also the torch, you know, that you'd actually might be used for, I don't know, some aspect of fixing a car, maybe? I, this shows how much I know about cars. Well, no, no, that's, I mean, I had the exact same question because the original word was acolyte. Mm. Um, and so I was pushing it more toward the religious. Yeah. And my editor at Four Way said, I always misread this as acetylene, and acetylene seems to make sense to me more than acolyte. You want to take a look at that, and so I, I, I put it in there, and then of course, the first thing you do is you call your father and you say, "Hey, Dad, when you're working on a Cadillac, 
is there any situation in which you would be up underneath it and you would need to use acetylene? And he was able to name one element <laughs> in which that is in fact something that you would need. And uh, that's actually, uh, I think that's where we also got the manifold uh, involved in it. A crack in the manifold. So a yes. crack in a manifold can be um, fixed with an acetylene torch or a new manifold put on, or, or I, don't, I don't know what wow. the cars do. But you see what I mean? Like, uh, so- But you're so, factually accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had to, I, I've, there, there was a better word. Of course, I like acetylene because it reminds me of heart crane. Mm. Um, but, uh, but in this case, um, it seemed like a, the, a better word than acolyte. And so to make the word work, the poem changed. Well, and it also seems like a lot of what I felt as a young man who didn't really fit in, uh, and I think a lot of young men feel when they're welcomed into this culture of so-called masculinity, it's a lot of standing around, learning how to do things that seem very dangerous, using things that are very dangerous, like torches or whatever, and in many cases, feeling kind of bored and lonely and empty because that doesn't seem to do much for you personally if you kind of feel like more of an outsider to that scene as I certainly did, it sounds like you did. So, but that element of, of there's something about men that we have to handle very dangerous things, firearms, mm -hmm. acetylene torches, you know, Cadillacs, just a long list of things that could kill you very easily if you're <laughs> careful. Right. That, that has something to do with being a man, which I think is somewhat bizarre when you, when you, when you, you know, excavate it and look at it, it's bizarre, but it seems like it's deeply sunk into, again, not just West Virginia or Appalachia, it's, but to, to certainly male well, culture in the U.S. But, um, but to, to stay on the West Virginia side of things, I've never, uh, never gone to this place, but there is a, uh, there's a mining uh, museum uh, somewhere in Southern West Virginia. Uh, the final, I guess the final exhibit in the entire thing is this, um, an exhibit about West Virginia's world, you know, world war vets. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's, it's, it's in a mining museum, but it's about people who went to war from West Virginia. And so the, it's almost like the, um, the cultural expectations about machismo uh, shifts from, from one pen, part of the pendulum to the other without even a blink. Right. So, so right. that, you know, it is, it is dangerous being a minor. It is dangerous being in war and, yeah. uh, and yeah. they seem to be connected somehow. I also wanted to go back to a poem that you write uh, in this book or that you've written for this book called the poet arrives at the former site of the John Brown trailer park, which I think is a softly humorous title in a way uh, because you have the juxtaposition of the poet, uh, which theoretically as you or your persona and a trailer park which seems you know like I say kind of soft focus humor but also seems like a really serious exploration of what it means to go back to these places once you've kind of been out in the world and you've been a poet or you've been you know a person in the broader world and come back to these kinds of places and what what they're like um and not in a way of being a voyeur, but in a way of being a witness. And I wondered if you could read that poem. Sure. Um, and and yes, there. I, I definitely think that there's a there's a humor to the title. Um, there's kind of an archness to the title. Um, but um, but I did grow up in a mobile home. I was mm. uh, until age twelve. I was in a trailer. I, I wondered about that because you do mention trailers a few times that I don't. Yeah. No. I, until I was twelve, I lived in a trailer and. Um, um, while my dad and uh, grandfather and uncle and uh, a few of my dad's friends uh, built the house that um, I moved into when I was about 12, uh, just right next door to it. So we were, you know, on a trailer on a, a hill all by ourselves. And then I moved into a bedroom with my sister and my grandmother. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, um, it was a great adolescence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how did you, how did you manage an adolescence in those conditions? I mean, that must have been... <laughs> That's for another podcast. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, okay. So this is called The Poet Arrives at the Former Site of the John Brown Trailer Park. I crossed the riverbed at Harper's Ferry, southwest for your ribs, Allegheny. There's news. Thursday, rapture-like, everyone moved on, left even Charleston silent, gray, legislators scraping down the Kanawha on sandpapery skin. 
your camps and unincorporateds closed their eyes, descended in a blue tattoo of Oxycontin. Land of my mothers, but not of my children, of Appalachian redevelopment commissions. Now birds die here, and seeds in summer hayfields molder. Sheep birth limp two-headed things, and some that speak like men if they speak at all. We grew up in a tin can shaking in the wind, stayed as long as we could, bargained the hill like the soul leaves her body for a city full of people and work. You could have noticed, could have called us back, could have called Richmond, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Baltimore, but we cut your metal bonds, vibrating hillsides, your flat acres of not much value, not much music. I think that's a terrific poem. And I think it brings up one of the things in this book of the, the degradation of the landscape as well, and the way that this whole area has been um, sort of neglected, abused by corporations, neglected, abused by, by, by governmental agencies, and just sort of left to, to molder, as you put it. And when you read it, I feel like there's a sense of almost anger about this, which is certainly understandable and is right there. And I wonder if along with that, there's any, any guilt of like being someone who left and someone who did, you know, strike out and find life in another area and doing very different things. Was that in the poem at all in your writing of it? There's a, um, when I went to space camp when I was in eighth grade, one of the ways that we celebrated uh, afterwards, it was a, it was a, a scholarship uh, for eight West Virginian kids to get to go. And so it was the first time I was ever on a plane. It was the first time I ever had a bagel. Um, uh, accidentally thought the bagel was a donut. And so I put the cream cheese on the outside like icing. I'm sure everybody from the Midwest has made that mistake. Um, and, um, uh, but afterwards, the, the, uh, the astronaut, um, I think his name is John McBride. So um, John McBride uh, was the speaker at this dinner that we had to celebrate going to space camp. And one thing that he said, you know, one thing he urged us all to do was to be sure that whatever you do, you go somewhere, you get your education, you get, you know, you start your projects, whatever you're going to do with your life, but you bring it back and you give something back to West Virginia. You know, hearing that in eighth grade, feeling like there was somebody who had told me what I needed to do was pretty affecting. Um, and so initially, you know, I really tried to stay in West Virginia. I, I went to this from my dorm room, I could see the hospital that I was born in across the across the interstate. So then I'm uh, kind of you know find myself in 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 Boston doing this uh, writing program at BU, uh, the creative writing program, mm -hmm. and I was trying to figure out how you know how I would come back. I was there for a one year program. I thought I'd head right back, and I, I think it was over or winter vacation or something. I, I came back home and went to a party and somebody said, why in the heck would you ever go back? Or why, why in the world would you ever come back if you'd made it out? And uh, so that was the exact opposite um, advice. And ultimately what happened was m pretty mundane. You know, I've, you know, I've got a job, fell in love, um, all that sort of stuff. So, so I ended up staying and I feel guilty about it pretty regularly. Um, less so as my kids uh, have, you know, are being raised as uh, straightforward New Englanders and um, proud of what uh, this part of the country does and how it thinks and all of that. So, um, but that guilt's there. And I think uh, that one of the ways in which the anger uh, shows up in these poems about West Virginia is why, you know, it's almost like somebody asking, well, why can't home, you know, have these qualities that allow me to be there. Mm -hmm. um, it's not quite uh, as uh, dramatic as exile, but there's, there are these qualities there that, um, you know, from, from the, the quality of the air, from the smokestacks on the river, right. uh, to uh, the, um, the unbelievable amount of, of growth uh, of the 
you know, the different types of weeds and pollens in the air that really kill my, you know, allergies and, you know, really prime my asthma uh, for that. And so why can't home be more, I think, uh, is probably at the root of a few of these poems. What do you feel about the current political and, and environmental situation of West Virginia and other similar areas in Appalachia? When you hear about what's gone on, what's going on, and obviously you have poems that touch on, uh, you know, Don Blankenship, who you sort of address directly in one of your poems, uh, who was the CEO of a big mine company and is a very public backer of Donald Trump and responsible for the big branch mine disaster. But where would you, where would you think is the best way for, for that region to go? Not that it's up to you to decide or you, that you need to be a spokesman of it, but you obviously know it intimately. It's funny. Uh, the first the first thought I had about um, what you said was you have to be careful to say uh, that Don Blankenship was responsible for it. Right. Well, um, <laughs> because uh, lawsuits have happened. And the poem, in that, fact, that addresses him that. directly, I think it's... Uh, it's actually just a, a pretty straightforward obituary. So <laughs> he's not dead yet. But, um, you know, one of the things that I felt growing up that I, I just couldn't wrap my head around or didn't know how to engage with was uh, politics. And, um, of course, today I realized that a lot of that had to do with the fact that I wasn't um, wanting for anything. You know, I, I, uh, I was the oldest kid. My my family was working class, but we were we were doing okay. Uh, none, nobody in my family, in my immediate family, were in the mines. But uh, once you get another level out, there were quite a number that were in the mines. I think my two of my cousins currently work in the mines. So I don't feel uh, terribly able to talk about the politics of West Virginia. I do know that I'm I'm very frustrated by the ways in which the legislature works for the businesses uh, at the expense of the people. There's a long tradition of that going back to the Buffalo Creek disaster in which the, the governor essentially left, let the, the, the coal company off the hook by saying, we see this as an act of God. And so right. suddenly nobody's responsible except the rain that happened that day through you know the redefining of the word well as you know the, the type of well well pad that you would do fracking out of rather than defining it as a place where you get potable water mm. um, and so that kind of you know kind of being in bed with business has been um, uh, a, 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 it's a rich part of the West Virginia political tradition right. um, and I see currently my family affected by it my my, the home that I mentioned that my grandfather and father built right now, it's uh, they just the coal mine went under it last summer. And so when they pulled out the last uh, columns uh, to get the last bit of coal, the, you know, the ground sinks. And so now there are cracks in the foundation doors don't close properly. There's a feeling of walking uphill uh, in the house wow. that had been level, you know, just the summer before that. Yeah. Um, my sister had the same experience at her house. They just added an, an addition on, um, and, uh, immediately the coal mine goes under, pulls out their columns and, and there's this, you know, inch wide crack that in some cases the ground continues to settle and reseals, uh, those types of cracks. But, um, but for many, the, the houses are never the same. And so that's happening. But at the same time, the fracking boom, um, the Marcellus shale deposit you know, has these huge trucks on roads that were not built for huge trucks um, every day. Your 45-minute drive into work now takes an hour and a half if you get behind the wrong one. And what's being transported is dangerous. Uh, I'm, you know, at times quite worried for my, my family. My, my sister has little ones living there. Yeah. Um, my parents still live there. And, and most of my extended family still lives in the upper Ohio Valley. I mean, for me, it's, it's a very personal thing almost, you know, in terms of the safety of the people I love. On that note, I thought maybe we could end with your poem, Mercy Prayer. Many of your poems seem like incantations or, or have a little bit of a prayer element to them. This one more obviously so, and it comes towards the end of your book. And I just think it's a beautiful and moving poem that we don't need to discuss a ton. 
but just to hear you read it in light of sort of everything we've been talking about. Thank you for your kind words about it. This was maybe one of two of the first poems in this this book to get um, a publication. Uh, it showed up in Salamander here locally. And the version that I read today is very, very similar um, to, to the version that, that w appeared there. Although in, in Salamander, uh, the edition there, the word, um, you'll hear the word world in this one. And the word used to be Lord. And I think that shift is actually, has something to do with what uh, this book is trying to do with, uh, with a religious view, if, if it's doing anything with it. And this is called Mercy Prayer. The hills tire of propping what's left, dream to be a trackless plain, combed by the wind, long like bored boys in Cameron High's voag for a gun, a tree stand, last night's girl scent lingering. They cup their hands, stay warm, breathe deeply, know the cost of staying, the cost of Pittsburgh is no alternative. Hunker down here like a burial mound on the river. They know a blindness that strikes hunters before dawn, a coy light when deer come best. Some lose their bearing in the mill, the arc torch, icy roof. Some fall from trees and break their necks. I'm driving to her down the ridge here, always a hummingbird's stutter on the windshield, gravel under tires. Spin us, O oh world, spin us a second time, out grapevine, out salt lick, wield us light. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I, I haven't read that one in a long time. Yeah. It's a great poem. Very moving. Well, Jake, it's been terrific talking to you. Um, I hope this has been been enlightening for all of our listeners. And if you if you have any access to to books at your library, through the internet or a bookstore, this is a great book of poems. Um, the Land of the Dead is open for business by Jacob Stroutman. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. Thank you, Nate. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So there you have it, folks. Jacob Stroutman talking about his debut collection of poetry, The Land of the Dead is Open for Business, and about his upbringing in West Virginia. His book is out from Four Way Books, and in the description of this podcast episode, you will find a link to Four Way Books so you can order it from the privacy of your own home, receive it hardly handled by human hands, and you may feast your very own eyes upon it. I do recommend it. It's a great book of poems. Jake is a great guy, and he was a, a wonderful guest. I want to thank him for being on the show. The theme music for this show is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. It's accessed through freemusicarchive.org. And as always, this podcast has been recorded, edited, and produced by me, Nate Beyer. Thank you very much. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.